uh, be with Jim and Barb and Joel and Crystal. Thank you for them. And we pray for Kathy. She's got a, a difficult situation in their building and pray that that would be resolved. And, and Lord, for Gloria, pray for, we pray for her healing. She has so many health needs and so many sorrows. Bring her joy and bring her healing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, let me get this started here. Today we are studying Hebrews chapter 6 again. I'm not sure what Carl did last week, but I heard that it went well. So today, Hebrews 6, and we're in a section that has to do with the assurance of salvation. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And we're talking in verse 11, it says, Show the same diligence, Hebrews 6.11 says, to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And I think in that discussion about assurance, I mentioned the fact that assurance, salvation is a, is a, comes as an either or. You're either saved or you're not. If you're saved, you're bound for heaven. Assurance comes in degrees. All right? That's why I talk about full assurance. Some people struggle with assurance. And some people have a real strong assurance. And First John talks about assurance. There's a number of passages. It's a very interesting study. Our assistant pastor, Ryan Habita, wrote a booklet called The Anchor of Assurance that really does a good job of explaining all the issues about assurance. So you can be fully saved, but still struggle with assurance. And so what we have here is some promises based on God's dealings with Abraham to help the Christian know the assurance of salvation. And it's interesting in the context because there was a very strong warning against apostasy early on in Hebrews 6. Very dire, strong warning that we studied here a couple weeks ago. But on the heels of that is this encouragement about assurance because the warning is to make sure that we don't turn away from God. But in the process of the warning, we're not to learn, lose our assurance, but we're to press forward in diligence, it says. So now we're on verse 13. For when God made a promise, the promise, the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Interestingly, when God makes an oath, who is he going to appeal to? You know, when we make an oath, we say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. All right? Because why? Well, God is the highest authority and we're appealing to Him. But what does God do when He makes an oath? He swears by Himself because there's none greater. God is the greatest. So, God said, I will do it. He makes this solemn promise to Abraham. Abraham is mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews because this is written to Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back and to go away from the gospel. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is appealing to Moses, Hebrew, uh, Abraham. Later, he'll talk about Noah, the great people of faith in the Old Testament, to point out, point out that this Christian faith is, has continuity. It's the, it's the very faith that Abraham had. The very faith that Abraham had when he when God spoke to him. And we're going to look at uh, an event in Abraham's life that illustrates that from Genesis chapter 22, and it really foreshadows the gospel. So God made a promise to Abraham. Now, it says here, the promise. 
And uh, let's turn to that all together rather than just have somebody look it up. Genesis 22, 15, 18 is the section that we're thinking about here. What happened in Genesis 22? Does anybody remember? Yeah, they, uh, that was when he was supposed to take Isaac, remember? The sacrificing. And then God intervened. And you learned that God provides. So in the midst of that incident about bringing Isaac up to sacrifice him, we have this passage of Sarah verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abram, Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. And as the sand is on the seashore, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That was the reiteration of the great promise of blessing that was first spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3. One of the most important verses in the Old Testament. And it's reiterated here at this incident of the, of the bringing Isaac and the willingness to lay him on the altar and God stopping Abraham and providing his own sacrifice, which points forward to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would die for sins. And this promised seed um, is the, 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 there's this idea of the one and the many in Old Testament prophecy. The seed, the one, is Messiah, Jesus Christ. The many seeds, descendants, would be all the followers of God who would come to faith in Jesus and thereby become sons of Abraham. In the sense of having faith like Abraham did. We don't believe in replacement theology here. We don't replace Israel, but we get grafted in to that uh, olive tree and become spiritual sons of Abraham. Why? By faith. Abraham believed God when he was given his promise. And he obeyed God by bringing Isaac to sacrifice him. And therefore, there's a reiteration of this promise and this seed is speaking here of Messiah. Because when it says, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, the, the goyim, the nations, are blessed how? Through the gospel that comes through the promised seed, Messiah, that goes out to all the nations. And so Israel to the Jew first and also to the nations. So there is one of the most important to promises in the Old Testament. This is for all who would come to faith. And this issue about God swearing. He said, by myself I have sworn. It says in verse 16, by myself I have sworn. There's none greater. God spoken. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And so this must come to pass. Yes? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, it's a demonstration, it's a demonstration in Abraham's life that his faith was for real. And, and the key issue that, that was learned in Genesis 22 is this phrase where it says, God will provide. I think there's a name of God in there somewhere. God will provide. And this, uh, notice, um, Abraham's faith. We could look back a little further in Genesis 22. In verse 5, it says in Genesis 22, 5, and Abraham said to his son, stay here with the donkey and I will, I and the, to his young man, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. Some people pointed out that even there, the plan, though the plan was indeed he was going to sacrifice Isaac, somehow God was going to provide. Because he has faith that they're going to return. That's, that's been pointed out. And then it says in verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. So, they, so he had faith going into this about God's provision. And so by faith, Abraham obeyed and offered up, offered up Isaac. We don't know. It's kind of it's an interesting story. I'll preach on this, and whenever I get to Genesis 22, where are we in Genesis 16? Probably about Christmas. I'll be preaching on this. <laughs> I'm preaching through Genesis every third time I preach, just because Genesis, Matthew, and Philippians, and so it's going to be a while. But I'll preach on this. It's, but it, there, it's kind of an enigmatic thing that. We don't know how Abraham would have known that he's going to come back with Isaac because he had it in his mind. He raised the knife. He had it in his mind. He was going to obey God. That's a good, very good point, Tim. He did have the promise that in Isaac the seed would come. He had that promise, and so he had this confliction of the promise that Isaac is the one. And look at what they went through to get Isaac. We just talked about Ishmael a week or two, a week ago. You know, went through the whole Ishmael episode. All this stuff to finally get Isaac. And now God says sacrifice him. So he has a, a conflicting thing. God promised it would be through Isaac. Now he's supposed to kill Isaac. This, both things can't be true. But he clung to the promise and said, we will return. God will provide. And God did. Quite a story, isn't it? And so no wonder Abraham's important in the Bible. Yes. So, so Dan, what is you? You haven't given up on your atheist friend.
the last year my mother died and three of my sister-in-laws in less than a year. And I thank God I got to tell them a little bit, as much as I could about the Lord. But, and I've seen a lot of death in Diana. But I said, you want more? I said, they don't want you around. You might pray right here. And I was angry, but then I wasn't. I just went in the yard like the centurion said, I don't have to be there. In fact, I'm so angry that maybe he is going to hell. But then I was wrong. I repent right here and said, Lord, if there's a last breath, if there's a hope, I fall on my knees. I don't have to be there like the centurion. And he said, I'm going to go to your house. And the centurion said, no, you don't have to. I'm an army man. If you guys say go to the sergeant, he goes. So I said, Lord, I don't have to be there. You're there. I just, as much as I'm angry and know this man's a big infidel, I pray that who knows? dying breath. I just can't have this attitude like Jonah, you know, because we all got Jonah on us. <laughs> you don't have to be there. He can be there. <laughs> Amen. Well, thank you for your compassion but about the gospel. I swear you know, because a lot of believers yeah. have no yeah. assurance. They grow in it. They just doubt it all the time. I can't go. I tell people, I ask the preacher, if, can you go to heaven and know it? And any preacher, you can't know that, the Pentecost preacher. Well, you sure can know you're going to hell, the infidel, and they even brag about it. We don't believe it, and we're going. So if you can have the assurance, like I was, a general in the devil's army, of knowing going to hell, which I was when I was dying, I knew I was going to hell. And never coming back off that cycle. Cried out to Jesus a lot. Like, Surely, when we preach on that rock, I can't help it. We're throwing out a line. We're on the rock. It's John 3.16, and they're drowning out there. But they can grab at us. Assurance makes you... People think assurance don't make you want to witness. Assurance makes you want to witness all the more. You're like fishing, like Jesus said. You'll be fishing of men. So throw the line out, John 3, 16. There's thousands of them out there. We don't know who's going to grab the line, but they can grab the line by faith. Isn't that fun? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I like to do it. That's why we preach the gospel. <laughs> you got, well, you know, we got to... We gotta... They're going to be saved. They're not going to be saved. Who cares? It, well, that, nobody should ever think that yeah, way. That nobody should ever think that way. And as a matter of fact, the greatest privilege on the face of the earth is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And woe to, Paul said, woe to me if, if I preach not. And um, um, I just count it a great privilege. It, it's, a great, it's a great privilege. And because when God, uh, the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. So you never know who's going to repent. Well, back to Abraham, verse 13. So God swore to Abraham. So what God swears by himself is, Surely I will bless you and in your seed. Is there any doubt? No. None whatsoever. No. The point is this. This cannot possibly fail because God said it and God cannot lie. There will be this seed, Messiah. The nations will come to him by through the gospel. Amen. Amen. And uh, God's promised that Abraham will have descendants, so many you couldn't possibly count them all, is literally true. Nobody could count how many descendants Abraham has. It would be impossible to figure it out. How many people have ever believed in the gospel throughout the last 2,000 years all around the world? We don't. Nobody's going to know until it's all done, and God alone knows. Yeah. Okay, so um, a couple passages that we're look, we would look up Welcome, by the way. We, 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 do you mind reading a passage for us? What's your name? Steve. Steve. Nice, nice to... Oh, you sent me a, a video. Is that you? Thank you. That was excellent. They, have a video, they sent me a video called Diapraxis, which is a doctor out of, that studied how this global marketing thing has been uh, subverting the church and the gospel. That's, that, that's talk, we're talking about the gospel. What a great tragedy. I just got back from vacation, ran my emails... Besides the 300 spam messages, um, 
I had some more emails from around the country every week. There's not a single week I don't get emails from somebody that says, our church used to preach the gospel, now they don't. Our church used to teach from the Bible, now it doesn't. People are not hearing the gospel. People are coming in for all these reasons, uh, and the church is growing. And those of us, in fact, some, a lot of these people, in fact, got an email today, said, you go to the pastor, say, please, will you preach the gospel, and, and we want to hear the word of God. No, we don't want to do that. Yeah, no, that's, you either, and they've been taught by this whole thing, which, thanks for that videotape. I, I, Dick, I'll show it to you next, and maybe we'd want to show the group. Interesting videotape. This is all part of this master plan of marketing the church. It comes from Drucker. And, well, I'll talk about that, and we're going to preach in Matthew 23. <clears throat> You're not making followers. It says to the Pharisees, you go all around the land and see to make followers, and you make them twofold more a child of hell than you are. That's, that's what Jesus said. Gentle, gen, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, said that. <laughs> He's also the judge of the world. But you know, I think it should sober us in the sense that if we, if people do come, if we do go out on the streets, whatever we do, what are we seeking to do? Are we seeking to bring people literally into the kingdom of God by the gospel or making them followers of ourselves? God help us that we wouldn't do that. Uh, because we're not leading people to the kingdom by making them follow us. Okay. Steve, Psalm 105, 9, and 10. And again, I'm not remembering your name. Sorry. Cindy. Uh, Isaiah 45, 23. Thank you. So you don't have a Bible, so I'll... With you? So skip. Okay, no problem. <laughs> uh, Dan, Micah 7, 20. Okay, Psalm 105, 9, and 10. Okay, it was sworn to Abraham, confirmed his to the other patriarchs, and is given to Israel as an everlasting covenant, everlasting literally, forever. The covenant will not be annulled. Isaiah. What do you mean? Because it was being narrowed down. I think the reason you hear about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Abraham. You have the seed promise. Alright? But it has to be narrowed down. It's being narrowed down all the way from the Garden of Eden. First it was given to the woman. Her seed would bruise, would crush the serpent's head, right? Then it's narrowed down to Noah because it's only going to be through Shem. So it's going to be a Semite. It's not going to be any of these descendants. It's just a Semite. Then it's narrowed down amongst the Semites, the sons of Shem to Abraham. But it needs some more narrowing. So that's why Isaac is mentioned, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. And then when it gets to Jacob, it's, fine, it's narrowed down to a tribe, the Judah. And so the, in the blessing that's in Genesis 49, this promise is narrowed down. So it's going to be from the woman, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And then later in history, David. And so, 
it's very clear that this Messiah has to be of, of a certain lineage. And that's why Matthew starts with a genealogy to establish that this is the one. This is who it is. Okay, so the next one was Isaiah 45 and verse 23. That's the one you were quoting, Dan. I should have gave you that verse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting that Dan was making a right application there because to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And so, the, either we do so now by faith in Messiah and gladly bow, we sing a song, gladly bow my knee, worship you alone, or we wait until someone is going to be forced to acknowledge the fact at the final judgment. You don't want that. You want to do it now. So that's a that's a good that's a good preacher's verse. <laughs> you use that out on the street here. <laughs> okay, Micah seven and verse twenty. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the day of old, from the days of old. Yeah, see, the, Jew, the Jewish people had assurance because of God's oath. And so they repeated that in the Psalms. They repeated it in Micah. God has sworn. He's going to... Moses pleaded to God when God threatened to wipe them out. And he said, no, God, you promised to put them in the... You don't want the nations to think you went back on your word. And so he didn't wipe them out. So... That's the promise of God. Now, let's see how he applies it here in, in the book of Hebrews. Let's go to verse 14. Saying, I will bless you and surely multiply you. So this is the irrevocable promise. Uh, I've got a couple more verses here. Brian, Exodus 32.13 and Diane, Nehemiah 9.23. We're going to see how this is reiterated in Israel's history. Exodus 32.13. Okay. So there is a, a reiteration and a reminding, being reminded of that promise. Then Nehemiah 9.23. Now remember, Nehemiah is after the captivity when they were, this little band, a ragtag band, was sent back to Israel to try to rebuild the temple and they had all the battles going on. Nehemiah's day. So it was a good time to remember the promise. So Nehemiah 9.23. Okay, so it was a reminder that God had done this. And then Nehemiah 9 is a beautiful prayer, by the way, praying that God would not only remember these promises, but restore the temple and help them to reestablish the, the services, the priestly ministry, the sacrifices, the feasts, and keep alive this national promise that had been given to Israel, which did happen. It did happen. Okay, let's go to verse 15 now. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. And uh, read the story of Abraham. He had a lot of patiently waiting issues. Didn't he? <laughs> Look at all the things that happened. From the time that he first was in Ur of the Chaldees to the going into the land. There's a famine. 
going to Egypt, getting in trouble, trying to uh, hand his wife over to the king there. And that that issue, coming back from the Egypt in the land of Canaan, the the, the herdsmen and, and the problem with Lot. So they, the Lot goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. He gets captured, the war of the kings. This is quite a saga, Abraham's life story, isn't it? Crazy isn't exciting, right? <laughs> well, so we learn from that that we go through ordeals, but we can't neglect the calling of God. Um, Mary, could you read Romans 4? This is, in fact, let's all turn to it, but I'll have Mary read it. Romans 4, 17 to 25, because that uses the story of Abraham. Paul uses the story of Abraham to preach the gospel of justification by faith. That's Romans 4, 17 to 25. Okay, when you're ready. Amen. Amen. Wow. Isn't, so there is Paul preaching the gospel out of the Old Testament, the story of Abraham and him bringing it up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we might find justification. Wow. <laughs> nobody could, I don't know how anybody doubts the inspiration of Scripture because nobody could ever, you couldn't do it. You couldn't come up with this idea of, let's start with this story that was like so many thousand years ago and have accurate details as far as the culture and the times in the ancient Near East, because most of this has all been confirmed. And then have all these different people write it and keep the story going without any contradiction. And ended up in a New Testament and then actually have a guy raised from the dead. You got to pull that one off. Okay. Uh, it's a lot easier to just believe the Bible. I would think there's no other explanation for it than it really happened. Fantastic. Well, let's go to verse 16 then. Hebrews 6. Yes, Peter. Uh, faith is always tested. It always is. And I don't think anybody's exempt from it. In fact, it's part of knowing that your faith is genuine. You, Abraham's faith is tested, and it says in James... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience. 
The Greek there is hupomeno, which means to stay under. And genuine faith will be tested. And the word for testing in, in James is a word that comes from a saying where they take a mortal mortar and pestle and they grind the material up to, to see what's there, see what's made of. Is there any gold in here? Is this, is this real? And so God allows us to be ground up in this crucible of life in order that we might know that our faith is genuine. And that's exactly what happened with Abraham. And that's what happens with us. You don't... When you go through a really tough trial, we were talking earlier about um, Jim Nissa and, and Barb. And they came in and talked to Carl and I last, you know, before I went on vacation. You look at somebody like that and you think, wow, how do they have that kind of faith? How do they persevere when the doctor tells you you got six months to live? Why does he keep pressing on trying to uh, establish a school of biblical studies? Well, God gives people the grace they need. and He doesn't test us beyond what we're able. He gives us a way of escape. And when you look at it from the outside, you don't think you could do that. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. God can do more than you realize when you get into it. If somebody would have told me seven or eight months ago what my life is going to be like since last December, I... I couldn't have, you know, I would have thought about just running away because of all we've had to go through in our family. Uh, I wouldn't think that I could do some some of the things we've had to do just because life forced us to do it. Um, it's just part of we. These scriptures are here to give us comfort that this isn't extraordinary. This is what happens. Life is a, it, God tests genuine faith because it shows it to be genuine. It shows that there's some gold there. If we never went through a test, we'd, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know. Maybe we just think this Christianity is some head trip that we got into because we needed a crutch, like some people say. But when you go through the test and God preserves you in the test, you know you actually gain assurance that you maybe wouldn't have. You gain more assurance by going through a test and persevering in faith than if you're not tested. Yes, uh, Kathy. Says in uh, reminds me of a verse that says in Galatians it says um, be not weary in well doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> okay, so it says in verse sixteen, men swear by greater one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is confirmation is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. An oath was to Call God as a witness of the truth of one as 
you know what? I've been on vacation for a week. I can't talk. All, my, all I know how to do is, you know, let's try a 16th ounce jig with a leech and four pound test. That just comes flowing right out, you know. I'll get back in the saddle hopefully before 1030. <laughs> I've been talking fishing for too long here. The, the truthfulness of one's word. We say, so help me God, meaning, uh, I swear this is the truth. That's what men do. That's what he says by analogy. Let's go to verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. That's the point. So God wants, it tells us why He did what He did. Desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose. That's a very important theme throughout the Bible. i got a bunch of cross-references to that. God's purpose doesn't change. Now, there are people who have some really weak theology that uh, assert that God doesn't know not only does God not determine what's going to happen, God doesn't know what's going to happen. So therefore, God is watching history develop and then coming up with plan A, plan B, plan C in response to what demons and men do. Now, how do you gain assurance from that? And I know some people that believe that. Very, and I debated a guy who believes that. And I know some of his followers. I went to seminary with some of the followers of, who got all went to get PhDs at the same school in Illinois and are now uh, propagating this openness of God doctrine. And I knew some of these guys, and they're very kind, wonderful Christian guys as far as their persons. They got this. And one of them told me, literally, uh, this one guy told me this. He says, if God has certain decrees that he said from before the foundation of the earth, and this is what's going to happen, then I won't serve him. I won't serve that kind of a God. I don't think it's not right. He can't do that. And so, I, I honestly think that this whole open view of God was created to meet someone's emotional needs. And I think that's true of, it, of the, the guy I debated. The more I talked to him, a very wonderful guy, very kind Christian man. I don't doubt his sincerity one bit. But he has a lot of emotional needs. And I think that this doctrine makes him feel better about Christianity. Now, personally, I think that we've got to accept what it says. And if the truth can't heal our emotional needs, then how is something that's not true going to heal us? Yes, Dean. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with that. Um, it's better to just realize that this unchangeableness... You know what the problem is about... It really, when you get down to the underlying issue in this whole debate about the sovereignty of God, you know what the real issue is? The truth as it's revealed in Scripture is not comforting to unbelievers. It's only comforting to believers. All right? It's only comforting to believers because it's very comforting to us. God swore by an oath. He cannot change. He's got us in His hand. He won't let us go. 
But if you want to have something that plays well with unbelievers, they don't like this. So you got to give them, well, God doesn't know and He's trying His best. And then they feel better about God. But How can God not know in John 5.13 says that you may know. He even tells us we can know because He knows. I agree. I agree. Well, let's look up some cross-references. Now, notice that to show who. That, here again is the issue. It's, this only is going to be comforting to people who believe the Gospel. To show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose. That God has an unchangeable purpose and He cannot lie. He made an oath. It cannot be thwarted. Let's see some passages. and You'll be surprised how often this comes up. Tim, Psalm 33.11. <clears throat> Joanne, Proverbs 19.21. Dick, Isaiah 14.24-27. Camp, you got your Bible? Good for you. Isaiah 46.10. And Dean, Jeremiah 33.20-21. And Cladorus, uh, Romans 11.29. I think that ought to be enough to establish the fact that God does have a purpose. <laughs> All right. Yes. Plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. God's plans and purposes stand forever. God isn't changing plans based on what happens in history. There's a technical name for that called process theology. You ever heard of process theology? Basically, it suggests that God's knowledge is changing as history and that God Himself is in process. And uh, that's, good. that's a version of liberalism. I think there's a guy named Whitehead. That I, 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 it's been ten years since I've been studying this in seminary, but, I remember, but there is a process theology that suggests that God's changing. But the Scripture is so clear about it that God does it. God, he said, I, the Lord, change not. That does settle it right there. Okay, Proverbs 19 and verse 21. Many plans are in man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Have you ever experienced that? I have. I have literally experienced that. Where it's not bad. We're, we get to participate. We pray. We plan. We can, it's not bad to make plans. We can make all these plans, get everything figured out, and then when we take our step, God does something different. Okay. So now we learn. <laughs> it's not that we fail because we don't know the future. We just have to make the best plans we can. And like those businessmen and James said, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. Right? Amen. Okay. Isaiah 14, 24-27. Yeah, you were fishing too. Wow. And that had to do with human history. 
That's the amazing thing about this doctrine of concurrence. Um, God's plan was to use Assyria. Okay? And, and the Assyrians are the bad guys. <laughs> All right? And, but Israel was being punished for infidelity. So God used Assyria to do it. And what Isaiah is prophesying is that God's purpose is going forward. Now, you've got thousands of people making their decisions on the face of the earth. You've got kings who either repent or don't repent. You've got Israelites who either serve God or don't serve God or either judge or not judge. You've got Assyrians who are, of course, it's not hard to get them to cooperate because all they want to do is murder and conquer anyhow. Okay. So, uh, and in the midst of it, God's working out a plan that's leading ultimately to our salvation. It's a good thing God's on the throne and not us. That was Isaiah 14, 24 to 27. Okay, now we have Isaiah 46, 10, camp. God's, the things not yet said are done. God's counsel will stand. And this is our great assurance. This, this is in the context of assurance. We need assurance. Because if, if, our, if we think that it's all in our hands, how much assurance are we going to have? Remember when that was asked at the debate? Some of you were at the debate when I debated Greg Boyd. Somebody said, well, if you, how can you have assurance? My response was, if you have more assurance based on your own ability than you have based on God's sovereignty, what is that saying about your faith? Yeah, you're trusting man. And the Bible doesn't give very good marks for trusting man. <laughs> yes. Well, man, uh, you don't want man to having power. Yep. No, it's always bad. The more power is unleashed in the hands of people, the, the worse it gets. Okay, Jeremiah 33, 20 to 21. So there is again God saying, all right, if you can get up and make, make it not be day and night, that's how you can break this covenant. Well, you can't. It's a poetic way of saying it's impossible. And there was a promise narrowed down to David that he would have a man on the throne, which is Messiah. So it's dependent on God's promise on a man. There's a lot of things that could have gone wrong. Look at all the times there were pogroms against the Jews. Uh, look at Herod wanted to wipe out all the babies and male sons in Bethlehem. There were all kinds of plans to try to thwart this covenant promise, but none of them succeeded because God gave an oath and God swears and He doesn't change. Romans 11.29 Yes, in the context of His promises to the patriarchs. Romans 11.29 so we got about two minutes. Let me introduce verse 18. We'll go in more detail next week. 
So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold, take hold of the hope set before us. The two unchangeable things are, one, the promise of God, two, the oath of God. Wow. <laughs> and who is it for? We who have taken refuge. I like that, taking refuge. There's, by the way, some nautical terminology in Hebrews. One of them, was, I couldn't find it again, but there was one about a safe harbor. And taking refuge would be a nautical idea of you find a safe harbor. We had to do that when we were up north. We had 45-mile-an-hour winds came up. Um, and, then, and then in the next verse it says, uh, we have an anchor of the soul. And that's a nautical terminology. So you find a safe harbor, you throw your anchor out, and that's how you ride out the storm. And our anchor goes all the way within the veil. So the anchor that we have is the finished work of Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed once for all, poured out in the holiest place, and our anchor holds firm. The winds of life are not going to blow us out and destroy us at sea, because we're anchored and we've taken refuge. And God said, that we that our hope is eternal and he cannot lie. And he has made it sure. So there is some objective biblical grounds for the assurance of salvation. And so I if your anchor is within the veil, you're uh, in good place. You're not going to go go down in the storm. I know when I was a new Christian there was a hymn that they used to sing about having an anchor within the veil. I don't know I've heard it for 20 or 30 years. We've got to find that. Is that the same one? Oh, we've seen that. No, I think there was another one that was more just the theme of the anchor. All right, I've got to look at my old hymnal. Anyhow, uh, we'll have a half-hour fellowship, and then today uh, the sermon is on Matthew 23, Seven Woes Against Corrupt Leadership. Seven woes. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, God bless you.